Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Chapter 1. The end begins. Mr. Echo, 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 Good morning, morning, Mr. Echo, Echo. How are you today, today, today? Good morning, morning, Mr. Echo, Echo, Echo. When a day that you happen to know is Wednesday starts off by sounding like Sunday, there is something seriously wrong somewhere. I felt that from the moment I woke, and yet when I started functioning a little more sharply, I misgave. After all, the odds were that it was I who was wrong and not everyone else, though I did not see how that could be. I went on waiting, tinged with doubt, but presently I had my first bit of objective evidence a distant clock struck what sounded to me just like eight. I listened hard and suspiciously. Soon another clock began on a loud, decisive note. In a leisurely fashion it gave an indisputable eight. Then I knew things were awry. It's quite good, this, that we, we found a book that doesn't just start on a specific date. It starts at a specific time. A specific time on a specific day. Yeah, on with a the specific clock date. ringing out. It's, it's, I, I, that bodes well. It's curiously specific. Welcome to the Curiously Specific Book Club. The book club that is curiously specific about dates and locations in books. My name's Lloyd Shepherd. I'm a novelist and digital product manager, work for the likes of The Guardian and the BBC. Hello, my name's Tim Wright. I'm a digital writer and producer, and I specialise in playing with new technologies to find new ways to tell stories. Every episode, we like to take a book out for a walk into the wild to try and figure out exactly how specific it is about the dates and the locations in the story and how much the novelist is just making up. So this week, we're going to specialise in a book called... The Day of the Triffids. So it's a day, is it? The it's, Day of the Triffids. Yeah, it's interesting. Not it? really, though, is it? What is the day he's talking about? The Day of the Triffids. Well, there is a day. There is a date. We'll come on to that. And that's what we're going to find out. But our hero, Bill Mason, is lying in a hospital bed with bandages over his eyes. He takes the bandages off and realises that everyone else has gone blind. Yeah, and even but worse. I, so there's there's a bun- everyone else has gone blind. <laughs> I don't know what that was. <laughs> 
It's The Day of the Triffids. By John Wyndham. John Wyndham. Again, one of these books that I think people will think they know quite well from various films and TV series. Yes, yeah, 1981. John Dottine. Yeah, well, there's another one, but you just refuse to acknowledge that one. That's the one you? with Do Gray Scott. Isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, you're not having anything to do with that, no, are you? I'm not touching that. There is a film as well. With a Howard Keel. I didn't know. Oh, that. what a beautiful oh, morning. It's never a good idea when you sing on the podcast. I love it. So we're starting in West London. We are going to move in towards London. Well, I, I, I essentially think we're on the A4. We're good, walking up the A4. Pretty much. Via, well, via High Park Corner and mm. uh, Piccadilly. And then Piccadilly. We're going to end up in a pub in the West End. Hooray! But then we're going to go out of London. We're going to go back to the southeast where we where we were really walking. West Sussex. West Sussex to a place called Pulborough. Yes, we need to get out of the city. It's gone completely mad there. Everyone's yeah. uh, looting. Shooting each other. There's disease. People are dying from the plague. It's disgusting. And then there's these giant plants everywhere that have lifted themselves out of their beds and are stinging people to death. Yeah, they seem to know their way into Piccadilly. Did you notice that? Yeah, they, uh, they, they can get right into town. They've all, they've, they've all got oyster cards. But first of all, we need to head straight out to West London and find this hospital. Uh, health warning. It's quite noisy. Why the founders of St Merrin's Hospital chose to erect their institution at a main road crossing upon a valuable office site and thus expose their patients' nerves to constant laceration is a foible that I never properly understood. But for those fortunate enough to be suffering from complaints unaffected by the wear and tear of continuous traffic, it did have the advantage that one could be lie abed and still not be out of touch, so to speak, with the flow of life. Customarily, the westbound buses... I'm looking at a pair of them now... Customarily, the westbound buses thundered along trying to beat the lights at the corner. As often as not, a pig squeal of brakes and a salvo of shots from the silencer would tell that they hadn't. Then the released cross traffic would rev and roar as it started up the incline. So you have a problem with the word incline, don't you? Well, should, should, we, <laughs> should we explain where we are before we start talking about No, let's incline? have an argument right now. Should we give the listener a little bit of context for the thing we're about to argue about? <laughs> So we're Fair sat enough. in um, in Hammersmith in West London. What road are we on? We're on the Hammersmith Road. On the Hammersmith Road. Mm. Why have you brought me here? Well, <laughs> <laughs> to buy you a decaf latte. So we're sat at a Starbucks next to a building. And next to a building which is, I think, the headquarters of Sony Ericsson in the UK, where it was until before the pandemic. I don't know if it still is. Okay. And it used to be West London Hospital. Okay. Founded in 1856. We have a lot of found sound in this location. Well, which is rather confirming Bill Mason's in the spirit description. Yeah, that's what I'm saying to you. Already, my point is being made. <laughs> if you want to find the noisiest hospital in West London, yeah, this is quite You're, you're here, looking it? at it. Hammersmith is sort of out of the west of London. It's about five miles, six miles from the centre of London, right? Yeah, and it's quite near the river, although you wouldn't know it from the traffic. It's, well, it's very near the river, uh, actually. But it was completely sort of changed by the Hammersmith flyover. Yeah. The, so most the people A4. don't even stay in Hammersmith. The, you, the A4 goes over the top of it. And obviously the, the bit in the middle where the tube station is, is a highly developed set of office buildings now. Yeah, yeah. I think it used to be the headquarters of Disney, actually. Up the 80s and 90s, didn't they? Yeah, so it's a very developed space yeah he says London he chose hospital. to erect their institution at a main road crossing upon a valuable office site yeah so i'm it's i'm good thinking, so far i like it it says in 1925 there was a new wing opened by princess mary this had an accident ward of 16 beds cancer wards each of seven beds for male and female patients 
And here's the thing, 26 rooms for private patients and two operating theatres. So he's a private patient, isn't he, he is. Bill Mason? He's quite keen to tell you that as right. well. And they were charged five guineas a week for a single room. Triffid business is good. Triffid farming business is good. Yeah. Well, the other reason I suppose you would say this works is, later on it says, uh, it pointed out that there was not even the distant hum of traffic, not the whistle of a train, nor the hoot of a tugboat. Yes. And the other reason this place works quite well for that is we're very close to the train line. Yep. And just beyond it is the river. Is the river. Yeah. Right. I'm yep. slightly worried now that this might be quite good. Yeah. So then the other thing is, of course, then we've got to think about his... First of all, there have to be five floors because one of the doctors throws himself out of a window. There were five floors. Oh, there were? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's all right. But then when he leaves, he leaves by a side entrance into a yard. Yeah. And opposite is a pub called the Alamein, the Alamein Arms. Arms. Yes. Problem. No pub there. There well, is no pub I, called Well, I can't arms. find any pubs on the, either of the side roads that, uh, to the, to the right. hospital. There's some other reasons why I love this hospital. Okay. One of them is that several episodes of the Sweeney were filmed oh, well, in this hospital. I can't give you that then. I found a really great article on theartdesk.com called Unforgettable, The Sweeney by Thomas H. Green. It was quickly clear everyone had a brilliant time making the series, except perhaps Thor's wife, Sheila Hancock, who admitted tearing him off a strip when he perennially returned late from the set, and as often, the pub. <laughs> the pub. Mm -hmm. Stories were told, too, that drew attention to the show's bawdy male culture, with Linda Bellingham recalling the weekly parties at the seedy Red Cow pub in deepest West London, where strippers were a fixture. You're gonna, you are gonna like the red cow. Right. You, yeah, you look at your little face, you don't like it now. No. Any minute now, you're gonna love it. Okay. Now, there is no Alamein Arms pub. Right. Down the side. Yeah. But this red cow pub yeah. is quite a good candidate for a pub that you'd wanna go into without the strippers. Without the strippers. Because on a Facebook page called Venues We Have Rocked, the <laughs> red cow, 157 Hammersmith Road, Right, which is that? It's just down here, just down yeah, there, it's just yeah. a bit further. He, he would have walked past it, Bill Mason, on his way into London. He yeah. would have gone past the Red Cow. So, no to the Alamein Arms, yeah. yes to the Red Cow. Jazz pub in the 50s, country music in the 60s, and then in 75, it became a rock venue. So Joe Strummer's 101ers were one of the first bands oh, really? to play there. And then a lot of punk bands, The Damned, and the first UK gig ever of ACDC. Oh, wow. And I have found, this is why you're going to like they it. They like strippers. I have found a reminiscence here on loudersound.com of someone who attended that gig. <laughs> so it was like 74, 75, something like that. It's a great little article by Malcolm Dome. What happened at ACDC's first British gig on April the 23rd, 1976? Okay. The Red Cow was an unpretentious West London boozer-come venue. It was here that ACDC played their first show outside Australia. Really? Yeah. Yeah, right here. You're liking it more now, aren't you? Only if, only if Rush was supporting. Uh, <laughs> as was standard, the band played two sets with a brief interlude in between. Before the first set, their prospects looked... Oh. Ambulance. Yeah. Before the first set, their prospects looked unpromising. Barely 30 people were in the back room. A mix of fledgling punks, student types, and the odd long hair. <laughs> Nobody knew what to expect. 
Angus was instantly the focus of attention. Word was out that he was dressed as a schoolboy. <laughs> <laughs> the set was short, just seven songs. Afterwards, Bond came to the bar, chatting to a few of us who had hung around. He even bought everyone a drink. Good rather got, got them gratis from the barman. And then he disappeared with two girls. Of course he did. Second set, word got around, the place was packed. By the end, any worries about Britain being a tough nut to crack had evaporated. Such a flying start gave the band a huge injection of confidence. Later that month, they embarked on the legendary Lock Up Your Daughters pub tour. <laughs> Complete with nightly Angus look-alike competitions. You would have loved this. But after one gig? The nation, England, Britain went crazy for them. They spent most of 76 on the road and they ended up being so popular they booked the Lyceum Ballroom in London for their final gig of the tour. This is also near here. Yeah, they snowballed. Snowballed, mate. Look, I've got the ACDC Red... So this is a rock, this is a rock heartland here. Yeah, ACDC Red Cow List, set list. Go on. Live Wire. I'm a Live Wire! <laughs> live Wire! She's got balls. She's got balls. It's a long way to the top. It's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. I am Bon Scott. Soul Stripper. Don't know that one. Can I sit next to you, Can girl? Can I sit next to you, girl? The Jack. She's got the Jack. <laughs> High voltage. High voltage rock and roll. TNT. TNT. She's dynamite. You're just making it up now. No, I'm not. These are all real. Baby, please don't go. That's cover, don't it? Yeah, they must have done that as their closer. Yeah. Well done. I'm quite so, good. I'm quite good. <laughs> You see, you had, you had a look of disdain when I started talking about I'm this. I'm happy now. I'm happy now. And now I found you a pub. Next Nothing to... in life can't be improved with the addition of ACDC. Right. So you like this hospital now, don't you? I do. I still don't think it's the right one. Damn it. So, talking a little bit about the book itself. Yes. Published in 1951. Yep. He started writing it, I believe, the, we watched a very, there's a very good BBC4 documentary about him, which you can see on YouTube, that says he started writing it on Valentine's Day 1949. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously not doing a lot on Valentine's Day then. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well. But the book was published, first of all, it was serialised in five parts in Collier's magazine. And from that point on, Wyndham was famous. It was an instant hit. Before it was a book? Uh, at the same time, in the same year. Oh, OK. He did write a lot for magazines before well, John, he became a novelist. Yeah, so let's talk about John Wyndham because, uh, you know, he's, he's an interesting figure. Born in 1903, eldest son of a barrister. His parents separated when he was eight, spectacularly. And then he went to a series of schools, at the end of which he was, went to Beedales, which we'll come on to. I've been to Beedales. Yeah. That doesn't surprise you, does it? it I mean, it, it, it's. Well, I mean, I always think that I'm, I'm collaborating in the choice of these books. Yet they always seem to end up talking about a private school somewhere, and <laughs> and then we always end up talking about Grisham's in Norfolk. I think that tells think, you more about the British publishing industry up till about nineteen, well, up till the present day, frankly, well, I think than, it, than it does about me. I think it says something about you as well. Uh, but yes, agreed. I helped Jeremy Paxman take a trunk up the stairs in Beedales. Did you? Yeah, it was twinned with my school, Beedales. Ah, but you ne you weren't invited there, presumably. Uh, was never invited there, but we shared our exam papers. 
You had special exams. Had special exams. What, what, so, in what way were they different to normal exams? Well, so you have different topics, like Beedales and the school I went to. Like to think of itself as progressive. So, I, I think it tells you everything you need to know that Daniel Day Lewis and Jay Jagger went there. Right. Well, Daniel Day Lewis went to Beedales and my school because yeah. I think he was kicked so out. It's a rock and roll school. It is it's a rock and roll yeah. school. My school wasn't. So yeah, so uh, he came out of school in 1921, tried a number of different careers. He tried to be a farmer, didn't he? He tried to be a farmer. He worked in advertising. He worked, tried to, did a bit of law study. But he did have a bit of a private income. Yes. And that sort of stopped him kind of committing to anything. And he took to writing short stories. For um, uh, um, mainly American sci-fi mags. Yeah, wonder stories and amazing stories. Um, there's a really great site called galacticjourney.org. Oh, nice. Which uh, blogs about science fiction fantasy stuff and has lots of great covers of these magazines. Fantastic Adventures magazine. And as you say, amazing stories. And some of them are have his stories in them. But he was writing as John Bainan at that point. John Bainan Harris. Yeah, or just John Bainan in some cases. So this Bainan one, was... This his... one, The Menace of the Metal Men by John Bainan. Yeah, so Bainan was his middle name. His full name was John Wyndham Parks Lucas Bainan Harris. Oh, yeah. So, you know... Harris. Harris. So it was, it was, his career wasn't really going anywhere. It was doing no. all right. It was and meanwhile, he's holed up in a gentleman's club, right? Yeah, so he moved into the Pen Club in pretty soon after he left Beedales, actually. But the Pen Club opened in 1920. <laughs> Yeah, and it was formed by the Friends Ambulance Society. Aren't they so, Quakers? Well, they had a Quaker, yeah, a big Quaker aspect. I yeah. don't think it was formerly a Quaker oh, okay. place. But he basically lived there for the next forty years, <laughs> right? I mean, it was like you know, yeah. it's, it's it's in Bloomsbury. Um, yeah. it's, it's shut down, though, isn't it? Didn't it go out? Of you know, COVID did for it last year. Literally last year, it shut down. That's what COVID shame, did for it. it. It's a real shame. Yeah. But he was living there, and there he met uh, he met a woman. Uh, oh, they had women in this club, yeah. Had, he, he met a woman called Grace, Grace Wilson. She was a teacher in Greenwich. And they had next. They had neighbouring rooms. Hey! And um, they didn't get married because she didn't... If, she, if they'd married, she would have had to give up her job. Oh, yeah. yeah due yeah. to some weird kind of, you know, um, marriage law. Well, until the, the Second World War, that was true, yeah. Um, and she didn't want to give up her job. So they basically conducted... I don't think it was a platonic affair, but, you know, a, a, a secret affair. People didn't know about it. And they uh, carried that on for, you know, for decades... And didn't get married until 1963. That's when she retired. When she retired. So that she'd, she'd had her career. And they retired to um, a Guess house where? in Steep. Yeah. Which is where Beedales is. Right. So, so he went from Beedales, to couple the pen of club. couple of years finding himself, then just decided to go to the pen club. Which is kind of like, a, pen kind club. Of like met, a school for grown-ups, right? Yeah. Met Grace. Yeah. And then went back to Beedales. Yeah. And by all accounts, he was a very private, secretive Maybe a bit weird, kind of weird's probably a bit unfair, but you know, uh, maybe not. You, yeah, I, again, you're, you're happy. You, I weird. think you're being a bit normative. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I, I dare you. I was. Yes, uh, you're probably right. You're probably right. <laughs> what strikes me is that he basically he didn't write novels, and then his brother, who he's very close to, because his younger his brother, brother yeah. went to Beedales as well, Vivian Bainan Harris. Yeah, that he his brother got a book deal after the war. Yeah, he published four novels between 1948 and 1951, having not really been much of a writer till yeah. then. So that must have tweaked his nose a bit, don't yeah. you think? And he decided that well, if he can be a novelist, surely I can be a novelist. So he, he brought out some one of his story ideas and worked it up into a novel, and it was immediately successful. Well, so when... he was driven by his brother, but then. 
And then because of his success, obviously, they demand another and another. But if you think about it, he basically wrote intensely, novels intensely, for about 10 years. So he's nearly 50 when, he, when uh, Day of the Triffids is yeah. published. So he's, he's quite an old guy to be talking about the new yeah. world, don't you think? Well, he was, also, he was also still very unsure of himself. There's an extraordinary story in the late 50s, maybe early 60s, where he submitted a manuscript... Uh, under the pseudonym of, I think, Lucas Bainan or Lucas Parks, mm. which is his middle name. But it was... it was. Oh, no, sorry, he submitted a book that was a collaboration between John Wyndham and Lucas Parks. And and then people said, well, who's Lucas Parks? He was like, well, it's me. <laughs> I mean, that just uh, indicates a slight lack of confidence. I, I guess know. so. Or Eventually, a- people are going to work out that Tim Wright is just another version of Lloyd Shepard, though, aren't they? <laughs> I don't really know where to go with that. I I know where we should go. I know where we should go. Where we should go? The Groping City. I left the pub door swinging behind me as I made my way to the corner of the main road. There I hesitated. To the left, through miles of suburban streets, lay the open country. To the right, the west end of London with the city beyond. I stood there indecisively for a few minutes then I turned east, Londonwards. So he. Uh, so he we've walks, been he walks walking down the Brompton Road, haven't we? We've been uh, looking for another hospital. Uh, I, I, I was. Um, yeah, what was that about? Well, I was theoretically sceptical of your uh, you, West London. When hospital. you say theoretically, you were instinctively sceptical. You just didn't yeah. want to agree with me. No, I was feeling quite antsy about it. And then um, I obviously like the red cow anecdotes. Yeah. Um, so then you took me to another hospital. So we went to the Princess Beatrice Hospital, which is on the corner of Old Brompton Road and Fimber Road in, I guess, part of town, I guess you'd call Brompton. So f- east of Hammersmith, between Hammersmith and London, further in towards London. The Princess Beatrice opened in uh, 1887. Well, and there's um, an ambulance, just to prove it. Yeah, there's an ambulance, just to prove it. And, uh, and sort of grew over the, over the years. By 1951, it had six stories with accommodation for private patients on the second floor. Okay. Kind of, mm, the right. of private patient. Now, uh, things we liked about it, the doctor in the first chapter rather, <laughs> rather peremptorily just throws himself out of the window on the fifth floor. Good God, man, I'm blind. Good God, man, I'm blind. I must kill myself. Yeah. And there was quite a good throwing yourself out of the window window on the fifth floor. Oh, very spectacular. He talks about it being in the West Wing in the book and... Princess Beatrice didn't really have a West Wing, so that was that was pretty good. Had a good entrance with steps up to it, also very good. I'm loving all these alarms, by the way. They're good, aren't they? And then um, things that were wrong with it. Yep. Well, actually, there's one other thing that I like about the Princess Beatrice Hospital. Which Go I, on then. Which I need to tell you, it was the hospital in American Wales from London. Oh, was it? Yeah. Oh, hold on a minute. That's yeah. Jenny Agatha as a nurse. Jenny Agatha as a nurse. She was a nurse in that hospital. She was a nurse in that hospital. All right, I'm coming around to your way of thinking. <laughs> so, you know, quite like that about it. The big things counting against it were there's a churchyard behind it. You'd mention that, wouldn't you? She would mention, right? You'd surely mention the churchyard. The it's doctor's office lo- is on the fifth floor of the West Wing. Yeah. And the West Wing would be where the graveyard is. Where the churchyard is, is now. So, so. Yeah, so that's so not so good, is I'm it? I'm not so keen mm. on the Princess Beatrice. There was a pub, though. There was a pub. We went looking for a pub nearby. Oh, they're going round and round. Yeah. But, yeah, the pub the pub was quite... It was a Pembroke called, called the Pembroke, formerly the Colhern Arms. The Colhern Arms. So I quite like the Red Cow, but you had a... You have found some stuff about the cold. Well, that, we in the same about. way that you would be strangely drawn to Red Cow because of your ACDC fetish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the cold arms is f- f- 
feels more like my kind of place. <laughs> it was a well-known gay pub. Right. Even in the 1930s, they had drag entertainers. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for this pub, by the way. I can't imagine John Wyndham. They had drag entertainers at lunchtime. Really? In the 1930s? Yeah. Do you think John Wyndham went for that? He might do, you know. Well, he might have done. Just because he got married doesn't quite, mean anything. Quite, quite a repressed individual, I would say. Yeah, it became a gay pub in the mid-50s. Yeah. Originally, it was segregated into two bars, one for the straight crowd and one for the gay community. <laughs> Are you reading out a cinema ad for it? Yes. We've got two bars. <laughs> in the 1970s, it became a notorious leather bar. Come visit our leather bar, just next to the cinema. Is leather bar an accepted sort of uh, description of a... Does a leather bar mean a bar you go to wearing leather? Oh, come on now. Or a bar that... Oh, is, you haven't is, really... You've lived, you've lived a very secluded does life, does it mean an upholstered you? bar? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's what it means. Yeah. <laughs> Shall I tell you who used to hang out there? Go on. Freddie Mercury. Well. Kenny Everett. Kenny Everett. Anthony Perkins. Anthony Perkins. Rupert Everett. Rupert Everett, she must have been about 15. Ian McKellen and Derek Jarman are all hanging out there. And then, curiously, the South African swing bowler Mike Proctor. Well, swing bowlers. <laughs> he <laughs> seems the odd one out in that list. Say. But That's I would have enjoyed it there. It would have been fun. It was nicknamed you, the Clone Hearn. I don't think I've ever seen you. Because everybody dressed I, the I've same. I've never seen your leatherwear. No, but I'd like people like that. I like, I mean, it was, I like the atmosphere in You'd places like that. You find it culturally interesting. Well, they're, usually they're very interesting people. You're such a tourist. Yeah, I am actually. <laughs> That's probably right. I've got a couple of other hospitals it could have been. Yeah. St Stephen's Hospital on 369 Fulham Road, demolished in 1989. Now the Chelsea and Westminster, so a very modern hospital. I quite like it because it's big and it had lots of floors, <sighs> but it's not a corner. Though, yeah. It's not a corner, so it's no. you can't get the buses going north and south and I'm, east and west. I'm barely listening to this now because... <laughs> and then the other one could have been the Royal Brompton on Fulham yeah, Road. because it is the West London Hospital. Oh, look, it's the Coldstream Guards. I think that's so one, we should... one for me there. Yeah, all right, OK. Anyway, Don't try and distract them with the Coldstream Guards. I'm giving, I'm giving you this one. OK. With that enormous is... reluctance. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Curiously Specific Book Club. If you'd like to listen to this podcast without any ads, head over to patreon.com and search for Curiously Specific and check out our membership tiers. You'll also get immediate access to any new episodes without having to wait a week. You'll also get our show notes with lots of lovely links and videos and maps so you can start planning your own adventures. So head over to patreon.com, search for Curiously Specific uh, and check out our membership tiers. But for now, let's get back to the podcast. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even Hyde Park Corner, when I reached it, was almost deserted. Okay. A few derelict cars and lorries stood about on the roads. Very little, it seemed, had gone out of control when it was in motion. One bus had run across the path and come to rest in the Green Park. A runaway horse with shafts still attached to it lay beside the artillery memorial against which it, it had cracked its skull. The only moving things were a few men and a lesser number of women feeling their way carefully with hands and feet where there were railings and shuffling forward with protectively outstretched arms where there were not. Also, and rather unexpectedly, there were one or two cats, apparently intact visually and treating the whole situation with that self-possession common to cats. They had poor luck prowling through the eerie quietness. The sparrows were few and the pigeons had vanished. Okay, well... I've got my camera out now because look. The, well, one uh, of these one of these horses needs to crack its skull on the artillery wall. They're just going past the Coldstream Guards. If they were going to do it, is it right. the Coldstream Guards? Are they a cavalry outfit? Obviously, it's not silent and quiet. Right, it's very very noisy Super and busy. Noisy. So it's quite eerie thinking this would be silent, isn't it? Yes. I'm still. I know I keep banging on about this, but I'm just astounded with the idea that he thinks that within 24 hours of everyone going blind, society completely breaks down. And it's not like everyone has gone blind, right? It's crazy, right, that people are throwing themselves out of windows, yeah. smashing shop windows, yeah. fighting over food. But isn't his point that, because he talks about the, you know, the veneer of civilization, isn't his point that you know, we're only one step we're away on the from edge. anarchy and chaos? And if we don't keep a bloody lid on it, we're all going to go mad. Is well, now point? you're coming around to my... Yeah, I was saying to you earlier about the pub. It's called the Alamein Arms right. in, the, in the book, right? It is. It's one of the few references to the Second World War in the book, even though it's written just after the Second World War. Yeah. I was saying, suggesting to you that that Alamein Arms is... You don't name pubs after Second World War incidents. It just doesn't happen. There's a very few of them. I think You've not a, been able to find any, have you? Well, there's Montgomery of Alamein in Warwickshire, but there's not... I mean, there isn't the Dunkirk, is there? Right. There isn't the Somme. Let's drink at the Somme. <laughs> that would be slightly strange. It's quite weird, wouldn't it? But, they, but if you think about it, it's weird that there are quite a lot of Victorian war... Well, is that because most pubs, pubs are Victorian? But they change their name. 
They changed their name. Yeah, but don't they change their name? Uh, when they're refitted in the sort of 80s and 90s, they change their name. Yeah. But if you were opening a, a pub up in the 90s, you wouldn't call it after a yeah, second world Would you do thing. that in the 50s? Say, oh, I don't think pubs were reopening. I don't think pubs were reopening in the 50s. My point is that I think that he says that reference to Alamein because it's a bit of a joke. It is a weird reference, isn't it? It's a bit of a joke that anybody would do such a thing because, in his worldview, Everyone's keeping a lid on it and yeah. not talking about well, the war. Because he, he doesn't talk about the war. He talks about Hitler's war at one point. Yeah. He was, he was present at the D-Day landings, Wyndham. He was. So I, I suspect he did see some rather awful things. And like a lot of people who came back from the war, a lot of men who came back came from back the war... Came back changed. ...just didn't talk about it. No. no. And that maybe that's what we're getting about the whole thing, that we're only one step away from completely breaking down yeah. because... We've seen what. Well, maybe happens. that's what's really going on with the doctor. It's not his blindness at all. It's like he's brought back the war. I think we should talk about 1951, about the year when this book appeared. Yeah, a bit of context would be good, wouldn't it? Just so you know the world that it lives in, as it were, where yeah. it sort of it emerged into. Yeah. I would say the most important thing yeah. about 1951 culturally yeah. is the Festival of Britain. I would disagree. What would you say? Rocket 88 was recorded in March by uh, Ike Turner's Kings of Rhythm, the first rock and roll song put to record. It's a very good point about music, I have to say, that I looked up 1951 in music and it was quite disappointing. Yeah. Uh, oh, come it, on, Rock at 88? That's not disappointing. Well, in, in the UK, there was... It, we, yeah, we, yeah, well. it's, it's a world of Bing Crosby and Doris Day, basically, and Vera Lynn. And then... A bit of Dixieland jazz by yeah. Chris Barber. I couldn't well, this bear is, it. This is why Rocket 88 is so important. There's no, but the, the other... Did you know that's the first year that Lonnie Donegan performed Skiffle? Is it? Which is probably more important because that influenced everybody. But like even more important Beatles. than either of those things, The what? Goon Show first broadcast. Ah, The Goons. Yeah. There's quite a lot of nuclear stuff going on as well. Yeah. I, I still think the Festival of Britain's like a big deal for the imagination of Wyndham and this story, but mainly because... If you go online and look at uh, the promotional videos for the films at the time, yeah. uh, they're really great, the movie tone stuff. Yeah. Lots of footage. And down in the South Bank alone in particular, there was an exhibition of... It's, it's like the great exhibition 100 years later is meant yeah. to be. Down in South Bank, there's a science and technology fair going on with a telekinema yeah. and 3D cinema for the first time. Yeah. Right? And, lots of, and, and a little mini rocket type thing going up, the Skylon. But then everybody walking around it is dressed like the Queen, you know, or the or, or the King. Actually, yeah. the King opened it. It's a, I think it's the last public event that King George attended before he popped his George socks, the actually. Sixth, yeah. It's absolutely about the sweeping away of the old world, or the respecting the old world, I suppose, but re- respecting the fact that it's gone, and the greeting of the new world yeah. of science and technology yeah. and atomic power and yeah. space. Yeah. Uh, and then there's the anxiety bit in the middle of yeah. like, are we doing the right thing? Are these scientists good people? Yeah. What's so bad about the old world? Isn't there something about the old world that, that's rather lovely? And that is John Wyndham's sweet spot, isn't it? I think it is John Wyndham's sweet spot. But I mean, I think the anxiety you talk about, I mean, the Rosenberg trial begins in America. Okay. In April 1951. Yeah. So Rosenberg's obviously sold nuclear secrets to the Russians. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the spectre of a, of a nuclear Russia is, is rising yep. at this time. First thermonuclear device tested by the US in the Marshall Islands, Here 1951. So science is coming, isn't it? Science isn't is it? coming. The Mark I computer is released in Manchester at the university, the first commercial computer. Oh, well, I, I had the first commercial computer program 
No, the Mark One computer was run by Lions Electronic Office. Oh yes, for managing tea rooms. For managing tea rooms. I mean, that, you talk about the logistics the old, of cake. You talk about the old world and the new world. Very important. We keep track of all the cakes. <laughs> How much tea are we putting in this cups? Surely we can exactly. reduce it. The uh, Treaty of San Francisco officially ended the Pacific War in 1951, and the US formally ended war with Germany. Ah, I want to talk about that when we get to dates as okay. well, we'll about, about the end of the war. Great year for film. Really good yeah. year for film. Yeah. African Queen, Strangers yeah. on a Train, uh, Streetcar Named Desire. Is, it, is that year? Well, that is that is good. It's not but, a bad not a bad year for books either. Uh, what books have you got then? Uh, I've got The Cruel Sea, of course. Oh yes, The Daughter of Time, What's Josephine that? Tay. Oh yes, yeah, that's 19, a great book. Nineteen fifty-one. Yeah, The End of the Affair. Uh, yeah, Graham Greene. Graham Greene, quite well, quite bleak. I'm not a fan. Um, but the big ones, the big ones for in terms of this one, we have got The Sands of Mars, which is Arthur C. Clarke's first novel, and Foundation. Do you know Asimov's they called Arthur C. Clarke the Man of a Hundred Hands? <laughs> Because he's such a creepy guy. <laughs> they did. Just so you know. They did. But going back to films, I think culturally, again, there's something very interesting going on. First up, they introduced X rating. Oh, hey, okay. there were X rated films for the first time ever. Yeah. But the, the one that I uh, really like is The Day the Earth Stood Still. They did. That is 1951, yeah. Which is a fantastic film. I, I'm slightly worried, again, I'm going to go back to boarding school stuff, is that I, I, I'm assuming my prep school just got a load of 1951 films on, on a reel. Well, and in, they showed them to us in for the like 70s. three years yeah. uh, over and over so again. So the the, as years. they were listing these films, I was thinking, these are all the films that <laughs> I had to watch when I was 10. There's, Gregory Peck was very busy that year. He yeah. was David in David Bathsheba, and he was also Horatio Hornblower. Both of those were on my list. Lavender Hill Mob. Oh, was that 51? Yeah, it's 51. That's and the man in the white suit. Yeah. And it gives, so here's the thing. If you crossed the day the earth stood still with yeah. the Lavender Hill mob, I think you'd get the world of John Wyndham. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you think? Yeah, I think that's right. I found a really great website from the Indiana University Cinema website yeah. about how Bernard Herrmann made the earth stand still. If you don't know that film, it's basically about how an alien craft appears and a big, massive robot appears in the... In, in, Clute. And is here because human beings are becoming too violent and risking not just the peace on Earth, they're risking peace in the universe. But the soundtrack is really good. I didn't realise it was Bernard Herrmann. So actually. Bernard Herrmann, obviously, is very famous. Psycho. Well, he did loads of Hitchcock. Yeah. yeah. yeah Vertigo is a very good soundtrack as well. He also he wrote the theme scene to The Twilight Zone. Very good, very good, yeah. But here's the thing I said about his, his orchestration. He said, orchestration is the sine qua non of film music. Imagine Darth Vader appearing on screen to the Imperial March played by a flute choir. Most film composers, past and present, rely on a standard symphony orchestra with strings, woodwinds, blah, 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 right? But that was Herman's thing, was that he refused to be limited by one ensemble. So he used to put together really weird combinations of music. So instead of sticking to the script, at one point he would, uh, in a film called Beneath the Twelve Mile Reef, he used nine harps. Now, get this. This is the orchestration for the day the earth stood still. Herman accumulated three electric string instruments, electric violin, electric cello, electric bass, two Hammond organs, an electric organ, two pianos, one celesta, two harps, three vibraphones, Two glockenspiels, percussion, one horn, three trumpets, three trombones, four tubers, 
And to this he added two theremins. Very good. And that theremin, it was the first time, it's not the first time it's used in movie, but it was the first time they were really foregrounded. Yeah. And they became the soundtrack of spooky uh, 50s wasn't, space movies. It wasn't theremin, theremin was Russian, right? Yeah. Wasn't theremin involved in the Russian nuclear program as well? well I don't know. I think Actually, it I was. I research that. But I think if it, it, the yeah. sound of the theremin across this, while you're reading this book. Yep. I, I was so hoping you would try and that do a theremin impression. I think I did better than try. I think I pulled it. I think I completely landed it. see them come in single file out of a side street into Shaftesbury Avenue and turn towards the circus. I don't like this game. The second man had his hands on the shoulders of the leader, the third on his and so on, to the number of 25 or 30. At the conclusion of that song, somebody started beer, beer, glorious beer, pitching it in such a high key that it petered out in confusion. They trudged steadily on until they reached the centre of the circus, then the leader raised his voice. It was a considerable voice with parade ground quality. Company! Halt! Here we are, gents, one and all. Pick a bloody dilly circus, the centre of the world, the hub of the universe, where all the knobs had their wine, women and song. Well, we are... We are enjoying the beer? We are having some beer in Piccadilly Circus at the Glass Blower. And uh, there's, a, there's a few things that happen here, aren't there? There's the, there's the encounter with that, that group of people. Beer, glorious beer. beer. glorious beer. You're... Well, the first thing that happens here is after he's seen this group in Piccadilly Circus, he's quite keen on a drink, this guy, Bill Mason, isn't he? Because he says, remembering that they had been headed for the Café Royale, I decided to revive myself and clear my head at the Regent Palace Hotel. Others appeared to have thought of that before me, but there were quite a lot of bottles they had not found. Yeah. Now, the Regent Palace Hotel yeah. is... Literally next door. Literally next door to where we are now, indeed. It's now the Ugg boot store, which of course <laughs> is the first place I'd uh, smash a window. Absolutely. Uh, well, been a, when there was social breakdown, it'd been an epidemic. If you didn't have a pair of Ugg boots when the apocalypse came, they're not tremendously good for walking, though, are they? They're good for comfort. The Regent Palace Hotel, 10 Glass House Street, so we're right, right. next door. Yep. Between 1915 and 2006. The most interesting thing about it, I think. Uh, is that during the Battle of Britain in 1940, the Regent Palace was frequented by Canadian airmen who found it a good place to meet women. Since the Canadians had invaded London, the Regent Palace had become known as the Canadian Riding School. So like it's interesting w- that Wyndham sounds like wishful thinking on the part of somebody there. Well, it's interesting that, he, that Bill Mason, obviously, he knows the area, and he decides that's a good drinking hole. Which meant that John Wyndham knew the area. Exactly. I think he did. 
So he cuts back to Regent Street higher up, and that's when he finds Gisela, I believe, close right. to Golden Square. Oh, Golden Square is just around the corner from exactly. here. Exactly. Just literally around the corner is Windmill Street. Yeah. Now that's also. You know, when we were saying that the Goon Show was the first. Yeah, 1951. 1951 Goon Show. Well, we're in Goonland because they all met at the Wyndham Theatre. Yeah. Tony Hancock, Bruce Forsyth, Tommy Cooper, Barry Cryer all got early gigs at the window. Harry Seacombe joined the bill in 1946. His act involved shaving while singing Italian opera. <laughs> Didn't take much for insane in those days, did it? He met Michael Benteen and Peter Sellers there. With Spike Million, they would go on to create the Goon Show. They were all hanging out round the corner. So they would have been in this pub, almost certainly. Morecambe and Wise were sacked from the windmill for being not funny. This is very much yeah. the cauldron. And it's also interesting that this is where him and Gisela make their base. Yes. Well, we, you think they make their base around here. Well, they go, really clue, well, they go into some luxury apartments. Have into you the, found uh, it, the reference? There was, as I had expected, no great difficulty about the flat. We left the car locked up in the middle of the road in front of an opulent-looking block and climbed it to the third storey. Now, he doesn't actually say where the road is. I think it's Regent Street. But um, the, the clue later on is that obviously they see a light shining in the sky. What he does is he, he, he puts a notch on the window ledge yeah, in line with where the light is coming from. Yeah. So that then in the morning he can work out what would be in line with the building. A light there certainly was. I'm looking out of her window towards what I judge to be the northeast. Yeah. I could see a bright beam like that of a searchlight pointed unwaveringly upwards. So basically, he's, he's southwest of the light. Yeah. Now, we, we know the light is at the Senate House, so it's southwest of the Senate House, which is exactly where this is. This is basically here. Yeah. The most substantial buildings here are the ones on Regent Street, the massive terrace. Well, on one side is the Piccadilly Hotel, it's now yeah. called the Dilly. The Dilly, yeah. Uh, and that did have private apartments. And they're, well, they say the third floor in here, don't they? And yeah. So they're not right at the But top. then on the other side is, a very, is the similar building. It's a classic Regent Street look. So they've broken into a ritzy flat, I reckon. In one of these blocks. Uh, in one of these blocks. So just opposite us in the glass booth, there's a, there's a place called Venture House, which is a commercial building in Soho. It's basically, its entrance is Glasshouse Street, but you also get to it from yes. 90 Regent Street and it's straight into the yeah. top of there. And then you'd have a clear... Well, if you come to the glass... You'd have a pretty clear view across from the top. If you come to the glassblower uh, pub, you've got to find it. Find, find the glassblower pub, uh, and then you're really right in the centre of all of it. You're in the, walk the heart of yeah, Triffid darkness. And the they serve beer. Beer, glorious beer. Beer, beer, glorious beer. Fill yourselves right up to here. Drink a good deal of it, make a good meal of it, stick to your old-fashioned beer. Don't be afraid of it, drink to your... So that's the end of part one of our day of the Triffid adventure. Sadly, we have to leave the pub 
and in part two we'll be leaving the city and heading off out into uh, the North Downs or the South Downs, South the South Downs. part of the North South Downs. Downs. I get very confused. It's the North. It's the North face of the South Downs, uh, West Sussex. If you'd like to get to the second episode immediately and listen to it right now, uh, you need to subscribe to our Patreon page. Head over to Patreon.com and search for Curiously Specific, and you'll get all new episodes as soon as they're available. We'll also share with you all our notes and web links, videos, and photos and maps that we generate as part of making each podcast. Uh, but I am looking forward to getting out of the city. Why? Well, just because it's nice to get a bit of fresh air. But but there's pubs here. Yeah, it's full of Triffids, though. I don't care, there's pubs here. <laughs>